series that we're going through, there's a temptation to just see disciple-making as some spiritual concept that only happens within the church. It's not true. It happens in life. The principles of what we're talking about happen in life. They happen in parenting. They happen at work. They happen uh, in all kinds of hobbies and things that we love to do together, right? And you learn how to do it better by being together, by receiving input and by sharing your expertise. And here's the thing, like me as a third grade girls basketball coach, <laughs> you do not have to be an expert at this. This is, this, is a, this is a very difficult mindset we have to tear down inside the church. Oh, that I have to be some kind of expert to make a disciple, to grab somebody's hand and ask them to follow Jesus with me. You don't have to be an expert to do that. You know how I know that? <laughs> Jesus does disciples. And we'll talk about that here in a few moments. But here's the thing. If you are relational in the way you coach, if you are relational in the way you lead at work, if you are relational in the way you manage, if you're a teacher and you're relational in the way you teach, success always comes. They may not become experts at math. We got five kids and only two of them could get math. I don't know, it's something in the parsley genes. They couldn't get math. A lot of creativity in these genes. Couldn't get the math right. They may or may not become experts at work in the area that you, they, they needed to. But something happens in the relational aspect that sharing and believing in them and encouraging them and lifting them up, you'll see that there is progress and there is something beyond just the skill that you start to value. And that happens in work, that happens in parenting, that happens in managing, it happens at school with teachers and it happens in coaching. It happens all over the place. Now, if the teacher or the coach or the manager or the leader is a mean, belittling person who doesn't know how to treat people, guess what happens? Everything gets worse. Everything gets worse. There's nothing that gets conveyed. There's nothing that transfers that helps to lift up people and, and want to be better at what they're, they need to get better at. I had a first grade teacher. Her name was Mrs. Esser. Mrs. Esser was a huge woman. Tall, big. She was kind of like a man in a woman's body. Like she just was this imposing figure. And I'm a little first grader. I was skinny as a rail. And I have this perfectionist thing and it was showing itself in first grade. Right? I, I'm an Enneagram one for those of you who care. Um, you can feel sorry for me. Um, <laughs> there's, a, there's a process by which she wanted to get things done. And she, I spent the whole year of first grade with her embarrassing me in front of other people, yelling at me, telling me to hurry up, to stop. You, just do it. Just make it. You know, and I was a little bit more slower than the rest of the kids. And it really affected me. 
Like the way we treat other people really matters. It just does. And every, you guys know this. But as Jesus followers, guess what? The bar's even higher. The responsibility's even greater. The willingness to be a relational, relationally driven person. That's what Jesus is calling all of us to. And you can do it. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to be an expert. But this series, we're calling it Disciple, right? And Disciple is be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do what Jesus did. And that's what we're trying to accomplish here. We're using this technical definition of disciple, and it is a lifelong learner, follower, and friend of Jesus who helps others. Come on, read it with me. Become a lifelong... Oh, sorry. You didn't have it there. Sorry. <laughs> sorry. Sorry. I'll, I'll, I'll pay more attention. Read the whole thing with me. Come on, everybody. A lifelong learner, follower, and friend of Jesus who helps others become a lifelong learner, follower, and friend of Jesus. And last week we talked about love and obedience and how Jesus said, if you love me, obey my commandments. And there's all this tension between love and obedience that there's something important we all have to get as Jesus followers is God's not that interested in just your obedience alone. People get hung up on this obedience thing. Oh, I got Yes. You can't follow Jesus without obeying him. That's true. But he's not just interested in your obedience. He's interested in love. A relationship that leads to obedience. And they're always connected. If you love God, but you never obey him, it's a lie. A lot of people in our culture live in a lie. Oh, yeah, I believe in God. They just, that's it. They just believe in him. They don't actually have a relationship with him or follow him. And obedience without love, guess what that is? Dead religion. It's, a, it's, a, it's an experience that lots of Christians have. They obey but it's all legalism. And it's sad. That's not what God ever intended. And so everything here starts with the heart. Right? So I want you to, I want you to see your heart. I want you to think about the heart of the matter. What's the heart of the matter for discipleship? It starts with your heart. It starts with way down deep inside. There's no way to be a disciple of Jesus Unless you settle the heart of the matter, love and obedience, the balance, the tension, the dynamic of the life-giving seed of love giving birth to obedience, there's tension, there's a balance with love and obedience. And I, I, I want you to see that you love and obey, and today we're going to start talking about, and we're going to talk around this thing, because over the next many weeks, I'm going to lead you on a journey. Pastor Darren and I and others are going to lead us on a journey of what it looks like to really be a disciple and what it looks like to make a disciple. And we're going to do it in practical, pragmatic, tangible terms, and we're going to create a pathway for our church to embrace what disciple making looks like. And you know, the problem for, <laughs> you know, there's so much information out there. You, you are, 
If you, if you type in disciple making into Google, you have all the resources you could ever want worldwide, including the history of the classics. The problem is not that there isn't information. There's tons of information. The pro- problem is choosing a direction, choosing a path. And that's why pastors need to be not creators of content. We need to be curators of content. We're curating content for our church to move forward. And that's what you're going to see over the next several weeks. We're redefining what it means to be a disciple in 21st century central Texas. Did you just check out on me? What does it look like to be a disciple in Liberty Hill? What does that mean? What does it mean practically? And so everything about the good news of Jesus, everything about God is relational. Everything about God is relational. It is relationally driven. It, is, it has a relational dynamic. And disciple making is so much more relational than it is informational. It's so much more relational than it is informational. But as westernized Christians, as American Christians, we have, we have totally focused and gotten fixated on curriculum as the way to become a disciple. It's not true. So let's start with this, all right? Everything about God is relational, number one. Everything about God is relational. Look at this exchange that Jesus had with one of the Jewish leaders. Matthew 22, verse 35 says that expert in the law tested him with this question, testing Jesus. He says, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment and the second is like it. The second pushes up right next to it. It's part of the greatest commandment. Jesus could have said, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's it. You're done. Good job. He didn't. He went on to this second idea, and he said, the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Jesus explicitly defines for us what is the greatest commandment in all the Torah, in all the Jewish scriptures, in all the prophets, all the writings, he said, if you do these two things, you got it covered. If you do these two things well, you're going to be okay. And it's because Jesus was bringing forward an idea that the gospel is all about relationships. See, we have this transactional view, often even of salvation. I was not saved. I prayed a prayer, I got over the line, I'm in, I'm out, or I'm in. How easy is it to get out once you're in? Am I really in because I prayed the prayer, or is there more? You see, the, the transactional movement of a salvation experience is not what God ever designed. When he... And we're going to see that. I'm, I'm, I'm getting off topic here. Here's what I want you to understand. The greatest commandment is the foundation and the motive for the Great Commission. Great commandment, great commission. They got to go together. If they don't go together, you're missing the whole point. 
Matthew 28, 19, you've heard it before, most of you have. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded for you. And surely I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus gives authority, and he says, my presence is going to be with you. But even in it, he's like, I'm going to be with you always. That's relational. So often we have turned the Great Commission into great information. And that's what we're going to undo today. We think about making disciples as educational, but it's not. The Great Commission is about love, loving God, and loving people. It's very much the same with disciple-making, relationships, love, engagement, relating, interacting. It's how people grow spiritually. Jesus invited the disciples to do all the stuff he was doing. And they just walked around and kind of hung out together. And Jesus kept getting interrupted. He'd be on his way somewhere and something would happen and he'd heal somebody. He was just on his way, you know, with his disciples and then masses of crowds would show up and they'd, he'd feed them. And there's, there's just a relational aspect and it's very hard for us to wrap our brains around what that looks like in 21st century America. Because we're so isolated, we're so siloed. And we've been taught that information, smarts, is the way that you become godly. I want you to remember that Jesus said, come follow me to his disciples, not come study me. He said, come follow me, not come study me. And so I want to go all the way back to the beginning this morning, Genesis 2. You want to go with me in your message notes? You can check out those message notes on the QR code, but you can go there in your Bible And we're going to read a little bit of chapter 2 in Genesis 8 and 9 and then 15 through 25, all right? So I'm going to to read it to you. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees. Everybody say trees. He he made all kinds of trees out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden, there was the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Okay, skip down to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said it is not good for the man to be alone. the interesting juxtaposition. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The next thing God says is, not good for man to be alone. (laughs) There's something here about relationship and knowledge. It's the second, third story in the Bible, maybe, if you get technical with it. For a reason. For a reason. Because it's the choice that all humans have had to make. Am I going to invest in relationship or am I going to invest in a transactional knowledge-based participation in the world? I'll explain what I mean in a second. Verse 19, now the Lord God had formed, uh, he said, I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground, all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them out to the man to see what he would 
named them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was his name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of the man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother, and he's united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and Eve, his wife, were both naked, or as my grandpa said, naked, and they felt no shame. There's 10 sermons in this little passage we just read. I'm going to pick one, all right? And we're going to go, we're going to drill down. The first thing I want you to notice is God included Adam in his work. He included it. Did he need to include Adam in his work? No, he didn't. But he put the man there to, the Bible says, to take care of the garden and to work it. God is always a collaborator. He's not trying to do stuff by himself. He's always been an includer. He includes you. God doesn't make disciples of anybody. You make disciples. We make disciples. That's, that's how he designed it. We collaborate with God. It's not, a, it's not the, the thing that, oh, God's going to take care of that. God's going to take care of that, and I'll just try to be helpful. Listen. You are integral, into, integral to the process of what God is doing in the life of a person. And he wants to do it with you. And he wants you to grab their hand and help them discover what he's doing. Because he is doing something. But it really, it really doesn't become complete until they experience the love of a relationship with somebody else. Lots of people love God. 1 John 4, 12 is one of my favorite passages in all the Bible. It says, no one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. Love is only made complete when it connects to another person. God's love is only complete when it connects to somebody else. Right? With you, it's good. It's wonderful. He's poured out his love in your heart. And if you just keep it there and never love somebody else, you don't get it. Are you with me? Yes. So God asked Adam to name all the animals. You don't think God could have done that? God could have named all the animals. But he gives it to, to, to Adam. And at first, Adam, you can imagine that Adam is like, whoa, all right, all right, here we go. Okay. And he has these awesome words, elephant. Rhinoceros. Ooh, pretty, pretty tasty word there. Rhinoceros. Just fun to know and say. Hippopotamus. Try that one. Go ahead. Hippopotamus. It's just fun. It's just fun to say it. Hippopotamus. But there's so many animals. There's so much stuff. And finally, you can imagine Adam's like, okay, well, uh, oh, I don't know what to. Bird. <laughs> Red bird. <laughs> Blue bird. <laughs> He's like running out of. God could have done a better job at naming all the animals than Adam, I'm sure. But he included him in his work. Because when you include somebody else in your work, guess what? You really meet them. When you work with somebody else, you get to know them better than any other engagement. And there's some other things that really help you know a person. But work is one of those things. It reveals so much. So does play. So does, you, so does prayer. 
So there's several things that are revealed, but work is like this thing. When they, when they smash their thumb with the hammer, you see what's really inside them. <laughs> and so God creates this model for humans when he proclaims it's not good for the man to be alone. God knocks Adam out. He conks him over the head. He does some heavenly surgery. He takes a rib. And when Adam wakes up, he's like, whoa, man. Some of you will get that later at lunch. The last verse of, the, of this passage says, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Humans were perfectly created and designed for relationships. No shame, no embarrassment, no humiliation. Just pure, clean, healthy, secure relationships. That's how they were created. That leaves me with one question. What happened? What a mess we're in. I'm glad you asked. Go to the next passage, Genesis 3, verse 1. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say, You must not eat from the tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, You must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it, or you will die. Verse 4, this is how the enemy always does it. We could do... 10 sermons on this passage too. I'm going to pick one lane and stay in it, I hope. Verse 4 says, you will not certainly die, serpent said to the woman. Always starts a little doubt. Verse 5, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. That sounds familiar, knowing good and evil. Is he right? The devil's right. There will be a transformation. There will be something that happens. They'll see things. Verse 6, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, which knowledge always is, it's always great for getting wisdom. The message today is not how evil knowledge is. The message for today is knowledge is a terrible way to try to receive life. Verse 7, uh, verse 6, he said, uh, she took some of it and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was standing there, duh, sure. <laughs> verse 7, then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig trees fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, but I was afraid. And I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Best scripture, best passage in the whole Bible. And he said, who told you you were naked? Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman. <laughs> the woman, she did it. The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I had to eat it because you know how women are. <laughs> Sorry, I was just a partially paraphrase there. Verse 13, then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent, the serpent did it, so the serpent did it. Serpent deceived me and I ate. Here's what I want you to see in this passage. These passages craft for us 
the decision, the choices that all humans have to make. What happened was Adam and Eve rejected the invitation of relationship with God and instead opted for a transactional exchange of knowledge to become like God. A transactional exchange of knowledge to become like God. See, everything about God is relational, but so much about us is transactional. Transactional, that means I'm going to give you this and you give me this. I'm going to do this and you do that and we'll be done. It's a transaction where there is no intimacy, where there is no engagement, where there is no relational life. Because think about this, they were made of dirt and life, God's life-giving spirit was breathed into them, the Bible says. They were already breathing in and out the life of God. That life totally defined their existence in the Garden of Eden. They, think about this, when, when Eve was tempted by the serpent, they were already godlike. They were more godlike than they were ever going to be. <gasps> Pure, full of life, full of joy, full of goodness, full of innocence. Everybody say innocence. Innocence. Uh, innocence. We denigrate, we ignore innocence as a life-giving quality in our day. It's much cooler and much more hip to be a cynic. It's much, much more appropriate in... 21st century Austin region to know everything, which makes you a skeptic of everything. That's what's cool. That's the people who get elevated in the world's system. I want you to realize that the tree of life could be consumed and enjoyed. God wanted them to eat from any tree of the garden except for one, and they just had to do it. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil was to be avoided at all costs. Why? Because it had no life-giving qualities. Adam and Eve disobeyed and disconnected from the source of their life. And they chose knowledge as the way to life. Which, by the way, is impossible. It's impossible. Now, the reason I'm spending so much time on this is because... Most of you are having a hard time, like you, you understand what I'm saying, like in its essence, you're kind of like, yeah, that seems right, but you live your life according to this principle of knowing good and evil everywhere. This is right and this is wrong. See, here's what Adam and Eve decided to wield the knowledge of good and evil for themselves to determine what was good and evil on their own terms. We're going to decide. I want to decide what's good and evil. I'm not going to trust a relationship with God. And, and the serpent, I mean, the serpent actually said, he said it in such a way that he convinced Eve, God's holding out on you. There's something he's not telling you. God's not good. He hasn't given you everything. And so there is an innocence that happens and I think that's what Jesus was coming to reintroduce in first century Palestine. He was coming to reintroduce everyone 
to the fact that God is life-giving. And his point, the, everything that's been done and everything that has been done, everything that's designed, all the scriptures, all the prophets, all the Torah, all the experience with God's people has been for this one purpose. I want to be with you and I want you to be with me. I know it seems so simple, but it's not just because here's the, here's the problem. It's not just the knowledge of evil that can kill you. Both branches produce death. Even the knowledge of good can kill you. By contrast, if you look at the tree of life, it's a life full of security, healthy relationships, innocence, humility, peace. This is what Jesus came to show us in his life, where we accept the kingdom of God like a little child. It's how the work of the Spirit happens in our life, producing the fruit of the Spirit. But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil produces the opposite of all this. Becoming an expert in right and wrong produces sitting in judgment on others. This, it happens immediately with Adam and Eve. Blame, victimization, bitterness, cynicism, criticism. It's their fault. Or... It happens the opposite in our day and age and in Jesus' age too. Because if you do it well and they do it poorly, guess what happens? You start to judge them. The tree of, the, of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is a choice and a metaphor for Jesus in the rest of the scriptures. That's what it is. It's a picture. A choice for a way to live, a way you relate to others, the way you see the world. You can choose Jesus and his life-giving relational presence, or you can choose the knowledge of good and evil and live in transactional relationships that always lead to death. Relationships that are full of shame and blame and anger. That's exactly the trap that the religious leaders of Jesus' day fell into. I'm going to read you a verse, and I want you to see this verse. And that, over lunch, I want you to talk about this verse. There's your homework. Because this is a challenging, this is an interesting verse. It's unique in the scriptures. People don't, they kind of gloss over it, but Jesus was trying to say something profound. John 5, 39 through 40 says, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Check it out. Jesus is saying, you're using the scriptures to try to get life. And what I'm saying is you've got to come to me. What is that? Relationship. The relational dynamic of the gospel has to be played out in every way. Now, is the Bible good? Of course it is. It, of course, the, the Bible is a record of God's interaction with humanity that we can learn so much from. We can see it. it. It focuses our attention very often. If we'll use it, there's something called the daily Bible reading. I don't know if you've ever heard about it, but it's so powerful. You get up in the morning, you read the Bible, and, and you make a habit of it, and it changes your life. It really does. But only if you have a relationship with Jesus. 
If you don't have a relationship with Jesus, then you just start to feed on knowledge of good and evil. <laughs> the Bible says that Eve saw that it was good for food. It's very filling. The knowledge of good and evil is very filling. It satisfies a lot. It feels like you're being nourished. But little by little, if you don't engage the relationship <laughs> nature of Jesus and of God and of each other, you turn into a legalist. You turn into a judge of other people. Or you judge yourself so harshly that you don't think you're worth anything. Listen, you look around. American Christianity has a reputation for being judgmental. This is an American problem, but it's a historically uh, big problem because the Pharisees were so judgmental of people. Listen, we've got to undo that. And to undo that, you've got to be aggressive in your pursuit of relationships, not aggressive in your learning of the Scripture. I want you to learn the Scripture. I want you to breathe it in. I want you to realize that Jesus is the Word that became flesh. I want you to consume it. But here's the thing. Knowledge can never replace life. Knowledge can never replace life. I'll never forget when I first started One Chapel, I saw all these people that started coming to our church who were heard about our church from somewhere else where they were unhappy, and they come to our church, and I was like, oh, people are coming to help us. And then I learned they looked like good, mature Christians, but they were a mess. That's why they were coming to our church and unhappy with their church. <laughs> See, if you're steeped in knowledge as the way to reveal maturity, you don't even know how to make a disciple. Because no one can be as good of a teacher as you can because you got so much knowledge. I'm in a Friday morning men's group at 6.30 a.m., and it is everything I can do as we have the conversation, and there's questions that are asked, and I'm like, Because you want to know what the you don't you don't know how to have uh, the key to a great conversation in a small group. You want to know what it is? <laughs> Awkward pauses. <laughs> because nobody wants to talk at first, but as soon as that person there's there's an extrovert in the room who will save you every time. Don't, don't, don't worry about it. But there's something about sharing your life with each other. This is why Google will never replace God. But we try to replace him with all kinds of things. Instead of seeking the answer on Google, let's do the opposite. I'll give you the last point, and I'll kind of tell you the idea of it. Number three, everything about a disciple is relational. Everything about a disciple uh, is relational with Jesus. And, I, and, and here's your week homework, all right? I'm going to give you this homework for the week. Luke chapter 9, write it down. Luke chapter 9, so I've given you two things of homework. Luke chapter 9, I want you to read through it. I want you to notice how Jesus sent his disciples and gave them permission and power and authority to do all the stuff he was doing. Casting out demons, healing people, speaking the, the, the truth of, of life that he was sharing, but Jesus, but Jesus says he's walking around. These disciples, they are not, they are not good at this. <laughs> the, all these people come to Jesus, and 
They say, send them away. We don't want these people to be here. We need to like, we need to like go be with you, Jesus. And he says, no, you feed them. No, you feed them. Peter wants to stay on a mountain where, where Jesus reveals himself, the Mount of Transfiguration. He, Peter, James, and John are there. Jesus is revealed to them with Elijah and Moses, and it's this incredible moment. And Peter's like, oh my gosh, let's stay here. Let's build temples where you can be worshiped. They didn't get what Jesus was doing, revealing himself for what was next in their lives. They argue over who's the greatest. They're sitting around dinner, and the disciples are like, who do you think's like the, the best? <laughs> One time they're going into Samaritan territory, and there's this, <laughs> this moment where James and John say, you want us to call lightning down on these people because they're not very nice to you, Jesus? <laughs> yeah, like Jesus would say, yeah, go ahead and call lightning down on them and kill them. You see, they didn't quite get what Jesus was doing. But here's what I want to tell you. Jesus is not hesitant to share his life with you. And you do not have to be an expert at everything in order to make disciples, in order to help somebody else. The way you become a disciple is through relationship with Jesus and with others. 